0: Welcome to the fifth episode of Who's Editing? A Thought Experiment, in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. But the joke's on us, because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact, must use them. I'll let you in on all the rules, but first, let's welcome my guest, uh, with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number five, and for the first time, bringing us a British perspective. This is the All-Commonwealth episode. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Ryan Blake.
1: Oh, thank you very much. I, I didn't realize I was representing such a large subset of humanity, but it's it's, uh, it's an honor and I'll do my best <laughs> to uh, equip myself on behalf of the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you're going to be bringing any kind of British influence to your, your choices. I did try to do a little... Canadian thing.
1: Yeah, and and I'm bringing unrelenting misery and the desire to secede from all beneficial unions.
0: Was this a challenging experiment for you? Was was this issue particularly challenging?
1: Parts of it were incredibly challenging. I was lucky because as I was going through it, I was looking at the characters thinking, "Okay, that one will be relatively easy. That one will be relatively easy." Colossal Boy was really difficult for me for such a long time. I was banging my head against the wall, and then it clicked and I saw how it fitted into my scheme. And that was a really big... My respect for Creeper hasn't increased at all. I still can't stand him. I'm going to say that right up front. But Colossal Boy, because we had a very brief, well, not really a chat, a text about Gorilla. And weirdly, after that conversation, straight away, I was like, got it. I know exactly what I want to do with that now because of something you said, funnily enough. But Colossal Boy, I love the Legion, long live the Legion! But. I never found him very interesting, but then it clicked. So that was that was the biggest thing. Colossal Boy was fittingly my biggest hurdle.
0: Yeah, for me it was Congo Bill was <laughs> my my toughest uh, or the last one I cracked. Let's say I think like the mo- the biggest challenge here is that there's like three characters from the 30th century in here. Actually, there are so few characters from like the contemporary era. It's, it's really the, the weird thing here is that there's like two or three characters that are active, like when the issue came out or in the contemporary era. Most of the characters come from the past or the or like a side universe or the future.
1: It was a wee bit of, yeah, who who still exists in any way, shape, or form? One more time, let's just tell people
0: what the, the rules are of this thing. Uh, our line of books. Uh, must include a monthly series for every hero, character, or team featured. If there are two heroes sharing the same entry, and that happens, the, the Kongos uh, are in here as two separate characters, let's say. We can give them separate series, or give one of them a series, or give them a shared series. We can give a villain or other entry their own series, if we absolutely feel the need to, but we can only name a single villain or such an entry from the issue to receive that honor. Imagine we're coming back from some crisis or other, so we can reboot characters, we can use any continuities version. It's up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries. Note that we are pitching our own ideas, uh, so we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books. Listeners, you decide which books you'd actually want to read, and uh, we'll play that game as well. Try to give a, a shout out to our favorite series from the other co-hosts line of books at the end tell me right did you have you said you talked about a scheme so did you have a strategy going to this some people go very traditional others hang some big event on it some use it as you you know set up an imprint or is this like the entire dc universe for you and nothing else what was your approach
1: Obviously, I read over the issue more times than I care to admit. I went through it and tried to think, is there connective tissue in this? I decided I wanted to take the characters I knew the least Mm. and the ones that were the least impressive on paper, no pun intended, and bring them out more. With one of the characters in particular, I thought something can be done with this. And I ended up hinging the whole subset of the line on that. So there's a kind of a contiguous external thread that circles all of these titles um so i suppose it could be an imprint but there are several instances where it does sort of spoke out into the larger dc universe so it can affect them or it doesn't have to affect them at all it depends on like the editorial mandate you know for when i get fired whoever takes over <laughs> they can decide what it does because because it's like you said there are people from the past people from the future Most of the people who are from the quote-unquote present aren't recognizably that anymore. So I suppose if I was going to say, give this imprint a name, and call it it an imprint, I'd call it the outcast imprint. Because fairly much everybody I cover in this is in some way an outcast for some reason.
0: Interesting. Mine was to make an imprint that, I guess is meant to celebrate DC history. So it's it's the 80th anniversary of the company, which is like right now, more or less. To commemorate it, I'm launching a line of books with a similar trade dress that has sort of a timeline on it, drawn on it. And each book takes place in a different decade. So I'm purposefully not putting these characters together in any way. So this is indicated the decade on the timeline somewhere. So none of my characters can interact per se unless they are older or retired or little kids running around. The rest of the DCU, with Batman and Superman, etc., is still set in the 2020s as normal. It's run by other editors. The only caveat being that they can't use any of these heroes, my heroes, without acknowledging that they are from a different era. So their memories, they're older, whatever you want to do. So uh, this sort of timeline imprint is what I'm hanging this on. And it helps that there are, in this fewer characters than in other issues uh, or you know it's one of the lower yield so we have to include a minimum of 13 books in our line and a maximum of 15 and then really that's somehow congo bill and congo gorilla got two separate books ryan i'm gonna hand it off to you first this one the first hero that comes up is a western hero cinnamon where did you go with that
1: i didn't tweak too much of cinnamon I wasn't hugely familiar with her and I, I dug up some stuff. I'm a big Jonah Hex fan, so I kind of got a lot by uh, almost like, you know, cowboy osmosis, finding her through that. Mm. She's on a quest. Now, in this history, I've tweaked it slightly because in the sort of entry, she, her father's dead and there's no debate about that and she's on a quest for vengeance. In my take on her, her father's not dead but has been taken and she's trying to find him. Now, her father had an almost supernatural ability to find anyone no matter where they are. And she's inherited that to an extent. They were a team. They were a law enforcement team. Her father was taken. She was not with her father. She was distracted. She was chasing another criminal. The funny thing is he surrendered to her for no reason. He was getting away and then he just stopped. And upon her return to town, she gets told she's been missing for more than a day. But she looks at her pocket watch, whatever. And to her, it's only been a couple of hours. Okay, so there's there's missing time there. And her father's gone. And the last thing anyone knows is that he was talking to a strange gentleman in a hat and a moustache, a strange hat that looked weird to everybody. And all that was left was a father's badge of office, which, although she doesn't know this term, has been mutated by some strange energy because the townsfolk say there was a strange flash of energy emanating from where her father disappeared. And that badge now acts as a kind of a Geiger counter for her. She finds that she follows the energy, kind of leads her, and she now uses it to track down dangerous creatures as she looks for her dad. Because everywhere she goes, she finds another clue about her father following his badge. But also there seems to be some weird creature around, you know, a, a kind of a strange chimera thing. There always seems to be somebody else also looking for the creature. So her quest is basically... It's kind of a weird west tale, kind of a mix between the old TV show Kung Fu and kind of like a man with no name thing, but it's it's a quest into the into the stranger unseen side. Similar to, but more pointed and directed to the period of Jonah Hex when it was written by Joe R Lansdale um, and drawn by Tim Truman. And in fact, that's the artist I would like for it, Tim Truman, but I would like it to be run up by Garth Ennis because I want Cinnamon to have a soft side and a hard side and a cynical humor
0: to it right so two gun mojo with cinnamon monster hunter it's interesting that you mentioned kung fu in there because well you'll see obviously the the decade for me here that is going to be on that timeline trade dress is the 1880s to me this is a very striking visual already the who's who page i love what brent anderson has done here so i'd want something in that style not the serpent so much uh, she's a little illustrative, but the more stylized features she has in the main image. But at the same time, I'm making her first-generation Asian-American because they never really explained why she was so good at using throwing stars. So I would play this a bit like the Arrow TV show. Uh, you know, main story is a Western, but there are flashbacks to a secret history where she gets trained by a ninja who's immigrated to America and maybe even tie in to the an old West League of Assassins, that she wants no part of, especially once she finds out her father was one of their victims. Like, in history, which gunslinger duels were actually assassinations? That's kind of what they're doing, uh, this League of Assassins. Uh, Cinnamon's on their trail, so yes, this is a Western, but I wanted to have a crazy Hong Kong action movie feel. People think the Western is dead. This is a series that would give it a, a high-octane shot in the arm. I, I don't care about realism in this one. Uh, I would also commission dime store novel pages to go into every issue. Uh, samples of how her story would actually have been related to the world to grow her legend. And the reason I'm doing that, as you'll see, is that I want to pay tribute to the, the writing and art of the era presented in each book. So either just in the style of the the stories or maybe in little, like, add-ons like this, little extras, like in this one. I want how it was written back then in whatever decade we've chosen to be sort of represented in a way. So that's my little extra for for Cinnamon. Next up is Claw the Unconquered. Uh, So here I went with, well, the decade is 500,000 BC. So to make this work with my timeline scheme, I've done away with the other dimension, Uh, that this is normally set in. Uh, So I said this in antediluvian times, contemporary with Arion's Atlantis, more or less. Uh, But I keep the 15 worlds as 15 cities or realms. Seven in light, seven in shadow, pawns of the elder gods of light and the shadow gods, just like in the entry. Pythagoria uh, is the neutral middle, that if it falls to one side or the other... Basically, decides what happens to humanity from then on. Golden Age or Dark Age? In a cosmic screw up, Claw has been chosen to be both sides' champion, and I would give a voice to both his demon hand and his benighted sword. So I, I do away with the glove that keeps the demon hand from winning because now that, that would be the sword's job. So Claw goes around this fantasy world being nudged by the devil and the the angel, you know, on his metaphorical shoulders. And uh, his choices give more power to one or the other, and his aspect becomes more demonic or angelic accordingly. And he resents both because that means he's losing touch with who he really is. But it's also a metaphor for how good and evil beget themselves and how our choices shape who we become. Obviously, there was no literature in 500,000 BC that, I, that we know of that has survived, uh, but uh, I want the back matter to be like some of that, the, the coolest stuff that we got in sword and sorcery novels, uh, you know, like maps and bestiaries and so on. So uh, there would always be a little bit of back matter that would do some world building. This is a bit like a, an Elric kind of story in a way, you know, where it's an anti-hero in a fantasy world. Oh, I like that. Did you keep Claw in whatever fantastical Pythagoria world or whatever it is? or There was a Claw in the contemporary era.
1: Mine is kind of similar to yours and also radically different at the same time because I got rid of the different worlds, same as you, straight away thought, no, don't want these. This, again, is sort of a quest book, but but it's an existential quest because Claw... Okay, so first off, the title. Couldn't decide which was less pretentious. It was either going to be Claw, the unconquered, with un in brackets, or Claw the Conquered. Okay. And in this, a thing you find out at the start, just in a sort of expositionary caption, Pitharia is actually a word in interlac that means salvation. And I just put that in there at the start. No explanations to why it's there. But to start with, we've got Claw walking out of, you know, the mists of history. We don't know when it is or where it is. Well, we know it's Earth. It's some form of Earth. And Claw is part of something called the clade, And he's the product of a superstitious time in a fantastic world that's primitive. He can only understand things in terms of gods and demons, not sort of an objective reality. And I know this is DC Comics, but he was told that he's been tainted by a demon in some way and that he would eventually be swallowed by his demon side. But he was given a chance at redemption by someone claiming to be a god of light that bequeathed him a gauntlet that hides his secret shame and stops him from becoming more demonic, okay? It's kind of like a, a, a sort of a vaccine kind of a thing for him, okay? Because this is how he processes things. But the gauntlet also allows him to travel to far-off lands. And we actively know from the background and his adventures that he's travelling in time as well as space. And he cannot take the gauntlet off. Although the gauntlet is promised to take him wherever he wants to go, it only ever seems to go where the God of Light tells him to go. And he's told that his mission is to redeem himself by hunting down other people like him and by returning them to the Gods of Light, who appear before him and he, you know, he captures them, chains them up, whatever, and gives them to the God of Light. If he can't do that, he has to kill them. He must stop them from breeding and, and enveloping the earth. But... During this quest, he discovers that many of these demons seem to be decent people. And he starts to question his mission about why the gods of light require him to be like, you know, hip deep in blood so often. And the the quest is about him questioning his position in the world. Like, why is he like this? Why does he feel these ways? Why is it that the gods push us around and everything? People he meets will say to him, you know, what are you talking about? You know, they'll make him question what's going on. And sometimes he'll be in what we recognize loosely as the present. He realizes he thinks he's on a holy quest and he sees things through his filter. And eventually that filter as the series goes on and he gets more wisdom will slowly sort of coalesce into things as they actually are, as opposed to what's happening. And he he comes to find he's being influenced, not just by this God of light, but also by people claiming to be demons. And it's about this guy realizing You know, he's not tainted. This is not a demonic side. This is part of who he is and coming to accept himself. Imagine if Conan, this is really going to sound pretentious, met Jean-Paul Sartre on the way to confronting Crom in a big final battle on top of a volcano.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Yeah. I I like this kind of stuff because you can actually play with the art and have like, like the fantasy sequences can look a certain way, but then you're sort of reality checks can, yes. can look.
1: I've got two artists listed for this. So Roy Thomas to write it, just as a sort of classic throwback thing. And I've got art by Walter Simonson for some parts of it. And also um, Sean Phillips for, like you said, the quote unquote real stuff.
0: The reality, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they did it with like uh, the Plastic Man me series where suddenly it's like Kevin Nolan for one page. When you're not in Plastic Man vision and stuff like that can be fun. People at home are maybe wondering, okay, when are they going to get to like a hero I know about? Uh, And we're not there yet.
1: I'm sorry. (laughs) Because next
0: up is Colonel Future, who was, you know, just appeared in a couple of Superman stories, really. What do you do with Colonel Future?
1: The title is Colonel Future, Agent of Cyborg. And Cyborg is an acronym. And just to give you an initial heads up of the flavour, I've got, I want it written by Rick Remender, and I want art by Derek Robertson. I threw most of him out, except for the costume, which I love. So Colonel Edmund Hamilton is a man on the edge. He witnessed some event whilst serving for NASA in the um, future planning department. He witnessed some kind of event. It altered his perceptions, and he started to get tormented by visions of the future. So he quit NASA straight away. And these visions of the future cause him to... He walked the Earth. Again, a little bit Kung Fu, but, but only for a short time. So now he, he doesn't have any heroic aspirations at this point. He sees the doom of the planet. He doesn't really understand what he's seeing, but he knows it's the end of the planet Earth. He just wants to stop seeing it. Okay, he knows it's far enough off in the future that he won't live to see it. He's done with authority. So he goes on this vision quest... He goes to the mystics of the world. He meets the Martian Manhunter during that uh, Armageddon 2001 sketch when he says, enlightenment is like an Oreo cookie. There's a deep cut for you. He meets lots of, you know, gurus and what have you. Nothing stops these visions. So he turns to science instead. He walks into the lab of Silas Stone and he shares his vision of these creatures running on planet Earth and ultimately destroying it. He says, look, please give me something. To stop my mind seeing the future. But unbeknownst to him, Silas was also tormented by this vision. He's a man of science and he objectively knows this is a thing, this is real. But Silas agrees to make him a neural implant, something he can plug into his brain that will just stop, them ha- stop it happening. But changes his mind whilst performing brain surgery on him and instead he connects Hamilton into his mainframe and extrapolates from his visions exactly what he must do to save the world. Unfortunately, the side effect of this is Colonel Hamilton's body dies on the operating table. His mind was kept alive in the mainframe long enough that Silas was able to manipulate the stock market, become very rich, build resources. Colonel Hamilton siphoned off some of these funds and built himself a biosynthetic body. A little bit like data from Star Trek, crossed with a replicant from Blade Runner. He now calls himself Colonel Future and he walks the earth once more, trying to help out the little man in the time the world has left. Because he extrapolated and removed the ability to predict the future with him, housed in his biosynthetic body, the monolithic forces of Cyborg, who are now very big and powerful and rich, are trying to bring him back at all costs, sending crazier agents each time to stop him from reaching a place that's been signaling a place called Congorilla. And we'll find out more. Yes, piece by piece, yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. Mine is, well, I mean, on the timeline, it's variable. Like you, I've wiped a slate pretty clean with this character. I now make him originate some 25 years in our future. So he was a kid in the contemporary age of heroes. At this point, uh, NASA is actually looking into ways to fly missions at faster than light speeds while also combating relativity. And So that's his gig, and he accidentally discovers time travel. But also that his co-worker, David Clinton, that name should sound familiar to people who've read the Who's Who issue, that his co-worker, David Clinton, has been mooching off his research and is already using time travel to change the course of history by creating a secret society called... See what I did there? And that society is all across DC history. Feeling responsible, Colonel Future steals his own equipment from NASA and goes wherever he detects temporal interference to stop the agents of Kronos from corrupting history. So he's the connective tissue of the line, with uh, different storylines going on in different eras, covered in the line of books, but maybe also outside of it. So he might meet Cinnamon one month, claw the other, and also go to eras that... Don't have their own book. Of course, the cover dressing basically would change dates every month to tell you where Colonel Future will be in that issue. And ultimately, at the end of the year or the experiment or whenever I get fired, if DC wants to bring Mm -hmm. some of these characters to the contemporary era, they would do so through the Kronos-Colonel Future storyline. Because there's a time travel thing right there. Baked in. Up next is the biggest hero we've had yet, Color Kid.
1: Who's the best known? I just want to point out that it's misspelled in this house, so there is a U in color. In interlac. who knows?
0: So uh, (laughs) I set mine in the 1960s, the late 60s. In other words, Color Kid is not from the Legion's time. Similar origin with a lab explosion giving him the power to change things' colors. And now he's using it to further the peace and love movement. He's pulling stunts like giving racists dark skin and enlivening protests with color shows. And I mean, it's also hard not to look at this character's costume and not see him today as an avatar of LGBTQ plus rights. It's almost painfully on the nose, even if it's just a coincidence. So I wouldn't force him into any given box, whether gay or trans or bisexual, but simply I'd give him a fluidity as to sexual preference and gender. So the book is a strange hybrid of worn-on-your-sleeve liberal politics and Silver Age ridiculousness. Uh, I want this to speak to the idealism of the time. So Color Kid, who sometimes goes by Color Queen, just like in that Substitute Heroes special, is naive. But we, the reader, will be allowed to see the hero's successes with... Some irony, knowing what's coming in the future. You know, it's like rose-colored glasses kind of thing. Fun, clean artwork and humor. I'm thinking Ty Templeton as both writer and artist, for example. It worked for my chlorophyll kid, Pitch. So I might bring (laughs) him on for every substitute hero. I don't know. So uh, that's my color kid. What's your color kid?
1: I went the opposite way. Dark? Uh, Well, yes. My title for this would be Color Kid with a U. The Coming of the Vacus. I would like it to be written by Noah Hawley who was the sort of showrunner for the Legion TV show. I would like Grant Morrison to sort of help them out with the writing of the comics. And again, art split between Ariel Olivetti and Mike Allred, and you'll see why. So Colour Kid's name is Ulu Vaca. Vacus is a Latin word for evil. And I also thought, okay, so what can we do with that? That can also be a slight misspelling of that with a couple of Ks instead could mean vacuum intellect. So I've got Colour Kid being an orphan, and he's given the name, it's kind of like a John Doe but more scientific vacuum. The first line of this is, Uluwaka is perhaps the most dangerous being to have ever lived. He can literally imagine or ignore you out of existence. So Uluwaka, in my take on him, and I've not changed the costume or anything of, but he wasn't rejected by the Legion and put in the Legion of Substitute Heroes because his power was no good. Brainiac and Computo saw him and calculated this guy is way too dangerous. If we help him evolve his powers, we are messing with reality. Too dangerous. He's at the very, very beginning stage of his power spectrum. No pun intended. The colour he's changing was an alteration of the harmonic resonance wavelength of anything or anyone. Okay, we were only seeing the superficial level he's changing things on, i.e. a colour image. You know, just a visual perception. To do this, he must have to have some form of control over electromagnetic radiation. The interaction between, you know, electromagnetic radiation and what it does depends only on the frequency. So they straight away said, look, look, we need to keep an eye on this guy, but we need to keep him within arm's reach. So we just tell him, sorry, kid, all you can do is change colours and not tell him the truth until we can come up with some way of, like, tamping his powers or what have you. Apart from anything else, they're terrified that Dark Side might try and grab him. And Brainiac also realises that EM radiation, or electromagnetic waves, they're also the basis for all humanoid thought. If he learns to control that, he can push you out of reality by altering everyone's perception of you. Way too dangerous. One day after being rejected, they're sort of watching him and what have you, He's approached by a man in a green suit who tries to recruit him. And Ulu freaks out a bit, thinking, why would anyone want me? He flees, but the guy's relentless. So whilst being chased, Ulu also finds, for some reason, he's also being chased by Cosmic Boy. But he's no idea why. The more he's pursued, the more his power grows, he panics. There is a bright flash of colour, and he's gone. He disappears from the 30th century. And you'll see from the other comics exactly how this feeds into everything else. Because as he goes, he doesn't realise this, but as he disappears, planet Earth starts to crumble and fall apart. And that's the last page of the first issue. (laughs) In
0: the 30th century, we're fine.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, we've got some time to... So Colour Kid is the linchpin of my entire imprint.
0: Uh, But what does that mean for Colossal Boy? Was he your hardest nut to crack in your line? Is he still in the 30th century on a crumbling
1: earth? Funnily enough, when I realised the end of Colour Kid's first issue, I thought, that's what I do with Colossal Boy. Colossal Boy, and if I'm feeling really pretentious, it would also have the subtitle of Colossal Agonistes, written by Ed Brubaker, art by Ron Lim, if we can get him. Colossal Boy issue one picks up scant seconds after Colour Kid issue one. The earth has fallen apart, literally. No one knows why, except maybe Brainiac. The only thing holding it together is Colossal Boy. Whilst the world flew apart, Gim Alon, his real name, grew far beyond his abilities. He reached out and grabbed the contents of the earth as much as possible. How's he alive? How's he breathing? He grew so much, his brain slash mind grew as well altering his consciousness and his perception, as well as changing his physical needs. He doesn't need air anymore. He can live for centuries on what he's already got in his lungs, however you want to, you know, Kirby it. But now he's physically a bridge at the centre of the world, holding it together. But his mind, his mind is so big now that his thoughts are everywhere. Avatars of him start to appear in various places. Those avatars still regard themselves as members of the Legion of Superheroes, but these avatars don't seem to know why there are so many of him. You know, if he bumps into himself on the street, he doesn't quite get it. He also doesn't remember that he's at the centre of the world and he mustn't know because his thoughts are literally the glue that are holding the reality of Earth together as much as his body holds together the crust of the Earth. So we've got the Avengers of his avatars and Brainiac and the science police are racing around the world and um, the UFP trying to find ways to control his perception, you know, control Colossal Boy's perception and not let him know what's actually happening. And to this end, Colossal Boy finds his mind slipping. And to alleviate his, his condition as a kind of mental self-defence mechanism to sort of prevent himself worrying and waking up almost, he's imagining a golden age for the, for the world. But the better life gets on Earth, the more he's altering it and the more he's also weakening his grip on it. The sort of tag of this is, this means all Legionnaires can appear from any different reality of the Legion of Superheroes, from any version of them. They can all coexist because he's bringing them in and they're slipping him through the cracks in reality. But it also means all kinds of enemies can come in as well. The tragedy comes when Brainiac solves the problem. You know, this is way down the line. He realises he can put the world back properly and hopefully in time before the damage done to reality is too great. He knows he won't be able to fix all of reality. So the earth he puts back together won't be exactly how it was left, which allows any subsequent writers after I'm fired to do what they want with it. And Colossal Boy by this stage, is too far gone to ever turn back to normal. He can't shrink back down again. And once the world doesn't need him, Gim Malon will simply cease to be. There'll be a moment where he realises he saved the world, but it doesn't need him anymore. It means his end. And moreover, given how he's dissolved into the world, will he haunt it forever as a ghost? Or will he simply never existed at all? So he, he has to choose. What do I do? You know, how do I go about saving the world? Do I try to persist or do I sort of like happily fade from existence having no one ever know me with the knowledge that I've saved the world and I've done the right thing?
0: Very high concept. And you say Gim, I say Jim. I just think it's like, I think it's just an orthography- Kind of corruption
1: i guess so i've literally never heard it said out loud so i just went with gim
0: yeah i'm not i'm not even sure i agree colossal boy is not the most interesting of legionnaires so i enjoyed that you went the the, the crazy cosmic route for me I, I i said it in the 2990s. this legionnaire is actually in in an actual legion time frame and specifically just after the popular paul Levitz era that most Legion fans are conversant with. The Legion is definitely around, but there's a what-if element. When Colossal Boy decided to marry Yira, Violet couldn't take the betrayal. And this led to him being drummed out of the team. He went into the science police for a while, with shades of the reboot, but he wasn't happy there, so the series picks up with him and Yira as private detectives. The series is called Colossal Investigations, and it's a sexy sci-fi noir taking place in the shadow of the Legion's adventures. Jim, or Gim, might call Brainiac 5 for advice, <laughs> or use Gigi, or Gigi, Cusimano, as his police contact, or accidentally get on the trail of the Dark Circle. Or wait, what if his history's been changed by Kronos? So he's got a good thing going. Would he want Colonel Future to set things right? I think there's, like, a, a story there. The idea is that uh, this is the 2990s, and so that means the book will lean into the 90s extreme, but not too much. It's still one of my books. So trench coats, dark, gritty storylines, a denial of the Legion utopia. It's not quite as dark and to some objectionable as the 5 years later legion because it only really fiddles with one member but it's still kind of the feeling that you would get from the book without being it being so opaque how does colossal boy become a standalone hero was my kind of my task here We're in trouble in comics i love the idea of the, the sexy couple that are full partners mr miracle and big barda hawkman and hawk woman you know, I, there, there are like these power couples that I like in comics. And I don't like it when they break up. I don't like, you know, I don't like any of that strife. I like the married couple that is strong and together and equal partners. And this is what I want from this with Colossal Boy and and Chameleon Girl working together sort of in the the sub-basement of the Legion universe. <laughs> uh Next up is Commander Steel. So it's really just Rock'em Sock'em you know, big names. Uh so Commander Steel. I, I put him in the nineteen forties, but you gotta you gotta realize he didn't exist in the forties, the character. Uh his stories were set in that era, but he's like, you know, his series was created much later. So I'm making this a team book. I'm really changing things up. Almost in the style of All-Star Comics JSA stories where you've got solo stuff, you know, all the heroes do their own thing and then get together for a big team up. I'm calling the book Star Spangled Comics. It's a living tribute to the Golden Age, because it's, it's gotta be, because it's, you know, on the timeline, it's the 40s. Big, thick anthology book, maybe not as thick as back then because money, but Commander Steel is merely the leader of a unit of bionic heroes, soldiers, others, who were hurt during the war and given replacement parts. The members of the Steel Brigade is what I'm calling them. Sometimes team up, but mostly the comic features different continuing strips. Uh, And done-in-ones set in the various theaters of the war, whether that's Europe, the Pacific, North Africa, or the fight against fifth columnists at home. Commander Steele himself is a cigar-chomping Sergeant Rock type, leading men into battle. The book would create new characters with different disabilities, but also high-profile Golden Age heroes could be folded into the book. People like Robot Man, the Human Bomb, G.I. Robot, who's not actually a... A Golden Age character, I realize. So a lot of Nazi punching going on in this one. And the Steel Brigade does, I think a bit like your cyborg organization, does connect to some of my other books, as you'll see. So this is a recurring motif.
1: I like that. I mean, with Commander Steel, he's a bionic soldier. And, you know, you've got to be careful just not to turn him into Captain America without a shield.
0: Because that's what he is. <laughs>
1: that's, I mean, that's what he is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that is, yeah. I just kept it, Commander Steel, written by Mark Wade, art by Dan Jurgens. because I just thought, let's embrace this. The twist is here, I'll make a slight tweak to his history. So Commander Steel was dropped behind enemy lines on the African front and he was caught in the backwash of what we'd later find out was a temporal event. The same temporal event the other characters in this line have witnessed, and now Commander Steele has to fight his way through every variant of World War II in order to try and get home. Okay, so he's not just fighting his World War II. Every so often there'll be a flash of light, and he will slip through into another World War II. The Nazis will always be the bad guys. There's no, you know, it will look different. He'll be in different places. There'll be different weapons of war. Along the way, he makes new friends and some new enemies. And he'll have to learn how much of himself he'll have to sacrifice to get home. He sees himself on a mission of mercy. When he sees a a hurt soldier, if he has the resources, he'll try and rebuild them according to the technology that helped him as much as he can. Some World War IIs will be like a science fiction nightmare. As he goes through and he rebuilds people, he finds he can stay in contact with these other variants of himself. And he'll meet himself quite often throughout. Some versions of himself he'll get on and some versions of himself he won't. He'll sort of like come to understand himself better. And he'll come to understand the nature of war. And he's trying to find a way to to get home. Eventually, he will. But when he does that, he won't be a soldier anymore. He'll be someone completely sick of war, and he will reappear approximately twenty twenty, the present, whatever the contemporary date you know, days depending on how how long the World War II section happens, outside a place in Kenya, a place that he will soon find out is called Congorilla.
0: That's where we're at now. Congo Bill, Congorilla is the next entry. Is your line staggered? So we'd follow Commander Steele for a couple, a year or a couple of years, and then suddenly Congorilla, boom, you know, that storyline starts, or?
1: Well, Kongo Bill slash Congorilla, I've got them as two separate books, but they could be a flip book because they're obviously connected. Because in this, Congorilla is not... An entity it's a place congo as in the congo but the second half is an acronym the redoubt for integrated life location actuality there's something called a clade which is a group of biological taxa such as species that include all descendants from one common ancestor so for example the neanderthals chromagnon uh homo sapiens all that that's that's a clade on our planet it's a bit less complex on dc earth on outcast earth the metagene makes this more complex. The clade is much wider. The reason I talk about that is because Congorilla is a cover for a subset of a future civilization that's trying to save the Earth. It's run by someone known only as The Rock. There is a tesseract buried somewhere in Kenya, finds itself on like a ley line, line nexus that powers the city. Congorilla the place is travelling slowly backwards through time, trying to recruit individuals that represent all the genetic diversity of the various species and kind of be an enclave, a safe place for them to go. So that if the Earth is destroyed the human species, all its genetic diversity can be repopulated somewhere. And there's a prophecy in Congorilla that the world will end in 2998. Okay, so Commander Steel can meet up with Congorilla at any point during its ongoing narrative, because Congorilla's moving backwards. So Congo Bill, written by Garth Ennis and art by Glenn Fabry, Congo Bill was originally a man from the Wild West, a sheriff, a tracker, who specialised in the Weird West, who one day took on... Uh, a strange case a man named the vacuum kid was causing trouble and he was the only man who could track him and as he did so he found himself being transformed by his prey as he approached him transposing him time and space and subtly altering his form and leading him to what is our rough present slightly before and he became a corporate president because he had to rebuild his life because he'd lost his daughter back at the turn of the century he did this because he knew where a lot of confederate gold was buried and he didn't want to bump into any descendants or anything in this new time So he moved to Africa and became a big game hunter and he heard rumours of strange and uncanny things, which leads Congo Bill to this fabled place, Congorilla, where he's recruited by a man known only as The Rock. And he's promised that one day he'll be reunited with his daughter, Cinnamon, and his original appearance will be restored. And in this version, his ring doesn't transpose him with a gorilla, but all these other members of this thing called the clade live in Congorilla. He sees Cro-Magnons, all kinds of people, and people with strange powers, and the ring in this instance, allows him to transpose himself of anyone on a given mission because he's sent out into the world to find other people with genetic traits that they want to save and preserve in Kongorilla. He also, he knows the ring isn't magical. It's some kind of bizarre technology.
0: Is Colour Kid an issue two already in the Wild West or is he really bumping around time?
1: Oh, no, he's, yes, you'll come to, he's bumping around time. So at some point he runs into the guy who becomes Congo Bill and-
0: Yeah, so your line is a, a lot of like- foreshadowings of you know at some point this must happen so it's full of crisscrossing timelines
1: yeah yeah and the thing is though it's still fairly loose so you don't need to read every book maybe a bit more fleshed out if you do but everything will eventually get explained in every single book the timelines are fluid in that color kid can come to the 1898 and cinnamon At any point.
0: For me, Congo Bill uh, and Congo Real, I just put it in one book, or there's no two books here. Uh, Like I said, this was my toughest nut to crack of the issue. This is really the first of two pulp inspired books in the line. I'm setting it in the 1920s. It should have painted covers in the style of the old pulp magazines, but the back matter, I think, is important too. Uh, So, well, here's the idea. Congo Bill is really the villain of the book. So you'll love this as um, as one of our colonial masters. <laughs> He's a great white hunter. He exploits the land and its people. He's generally everything that's bad about colonialism. But someone, or rather, something, is onto him, and that's the golden gorilla of legend that's ruining his business at every turn. What he will come to find out is that the gorilla is possessed by a person or persons unknown, rubbing the magic ring and switching places with the ape, in, as just like in the original story. Uh, Maybe it's someone close to him. Maybe it's a different person every night, depending. Uh, And maybe it's him in an act of unconscious sabotage. And in the back of each issue, there will be a sort of comic pulp hybrid with panels drawn in an old-fashioned comic strip style with text under each box, rather than dialogue, uh, showing Congo Bill's adventures as a hero. So this is how the stories would have been told back in the day when, you know, colonial was in the right, and kind of how Congo Bill's legend is spread across the empire. And usually, this is going to be like an ironic counterpoint to the main story, but it doesn't have to relate to it every time. But I'm really I'm making Congo Bill like this, like a villain, and the Congorilla is the hero. But the mystery of who Kong gorilla is, or what Kong gorilla is, is kind of the the motor for for this series. This is number one on my Commonwealth. <laughs> connection
1: (laughs) (laughs) so it's like a jekyll and hyde kind of a thing going on
0: it could be because i do think that one of the the cool answers is that congo bill is congo gorilla he's you know a part of him is destroying his own work it doesn't necessarily have to be that you know i'll play coy with it for as long as i can okay back to the 30th century cosmic boy you know your color kid kind of gave me the the vibes here for for this because this is uh 2960s is the decade I've chosen. I'm setting the book in the utopian future of the Legion's early stories, even before the Legion is formed, in this case. It's a sports comic. So, Cosmic Boy is playing Magnoball Ball as a teenager. Uh, there's a strong manga vibe to it. And as the series progresses, there are two things that are going to happen. One is the creation of the Legion, much more slowly than in the original continuity, rock you know, it was kind of trying to figure out how to have a sports career and also do this other thing at the same time. And a note that this means, of course, that if DC wants to do a quote-unquote contemporary Legion book, the team's origins have to be 60 years back. So it should be filled with legacy heroes, basically. You would have, like, the founders would be long gone, probably. Uh, anyway, the other thing that has to happen here is that we'll be following the development of Cosmic Boy. The origin of that name, Cosmic Boy. Why Cosmic rather than magnetic. Rock is connected to the universe in a way we never guessed. It may or may not be connected to the Time Trapper, or to Kronos, or the Timeline, but he's fated for something big, and may ultimately grow to be the 30th or 31st century's most powerful hero. Whether that means it's destructive, whether it means it's, it's positive or messianic, uh, that's up to the writers of the book. You know, as editor, I'm just giving the first kick, And saying this has got to be important and we've got to somehow eventually explain in this book. I say it's a sports comic and then I'm thinking manga and I'm thinking, uh, you know, Shaolin soccer and that kind of stuff. But... That also brings up images of something I never really watched, but like Dragon Ball Z and stuff, and where Goku gets more and more powerful. People talk to me about this more than I've actually seen it, but he gets more and more powerful and goes up against more and more powerful enemies, and it's like it becomes ridiculous almost. That's kind of the vibe here, where Cosmic Boy is gonna grow by leaps and bounds and have power over more than just the magnetic force, the electromagnetic force, but maybe the whole unified field theory of the four forces or, and your cosmic boy was also, was, you know, connected to the color kid thing. He's chasing him. Does he chase him through time? Is this, is that where this is going?
1: You've kind of uh, hit upon a little bit of a theme here between the two of us. The first issue of cosmic boy, cosmic boy has been assigned to look over color boy, much like you said, he's a magnable celebrity and he doesn't want the job. He's an important part of the Legion of Superheroes. Why should I bother watching him? I don't care. Um, he's nothing. He can change colours. Why does he need a bodyguard? Why does he need someone watching over him? He's goofing off playing Magna Ball when suddenly there's like world-class alert. The whole world's in danger. The earth suddenly starts falling apart. Cosmic Boy is like, well, you know, I've got magnetic powers. Let me help. Brainiac says, no, this is beyond your power scale for now. I need you to head to the Legion of Substitute Heroes clubhouse. Cosmic Boy's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. But he does it. He gets there. Brainiac is... It comes back to Brainiac mumbling something about, I should have told Cosmic Boy that Colour Boy is his brother and his parents gave him up for adoption. I should have told him. I regret it. Cosmic Boy heads to the Legion of Substitute Heroes as the world's falling apart and something is happening with time. He sees this guy in green and he's caught in the temporal wake. But as he's doing, so he scrambles to like a a faulty time bubble because they don't trust the Legion of Substitute Heroes with, you know, a good one, a good model that works. So he jumps in that to try and protect himself because it's the only thing he can do. And he tries to chase color boy who he sees doing something and he doesn't understand well, how's color doing this what's going on he tries to chase color and this other person as he forlornly sees the earth break apart as it leaves in a big double page spread eagle-eyed viewers will see colossal boy maybe growing in the background read colossal boy one colossus agonistes the end of issue one ends with the time bubble crashing cosmic voice sort of crawls out he's he asks his ring where am i and it says you are in kenya time unknown then he sees Neanderthals and Cro-Magnons. Uh, he sees various people and he knows they shouldn't be together. Cosmic Boy realises his faulty time bubble has done something to the local timescape. And with his new friends, he puts together a way to sort of try to save the world, you know, or at least some of it. And the time bubble has formed a kind of temporal fissure or sinkhole, which allows certain types of creatures to sort of fall into it from across time, which is why he's got all these people from the human clade. Wandering in, they should be able to Because the time bubble was progressing backwards through time So is this envelope, this bubble of time That the 40 timeship has, fo- has formed He realised he's, he's moving, everyone in it is moving slowly backwards through time Which also means, obviously this is Kongorilla This is the origins of Kongorilla His powers over the electromagnetic spectrum Much like Colour Boys Mean he has access to a vast array of powers that he didn't realise he had But because he started off quite powerful and was satisfied with his lot Brainiac never thought the need to say, Cosmic Boy, we need to put something in his brain to stop him from getting too powerful because Cosmic Boy was quite smug and self-satisfied and happy with being a celebrity in magnetics. But now he realises he's got a grave responsibility. He has to try to save the Earth or rather he has to come up with some way to save mankind, humankind's genetic diversity so that when the Earth is destroyed in 2998, which he doesn't think he can prevent, he's got the ability to take these people from Earth to another planet or maybe try and reboot Earth and restore all of the human race, all its genetic diversity. And the first thing he realises is he can't do it alone. He is the thing that holds together Congorilla. So he retools his legion ring, duplicates it, but rather than give the full 30th century technology to people who won't understand it, because he knows he can't meet anyone from then, they can move backwards in time into the Congorilla, and they can swap out, with other people across time and space as needed and appropriate. So the first one he gives is to Congo Bill, which allows him to swap out with other members of the clade. And the clade are all put in contact mentally with these rings. And so Cosmic Boy, who will later become like just Cosmic or Cosmos, he's trying to create almost like a new legion of superheroes formed from the sort of clade of the metagene and the human race. Going out across time to find people with all the genetic codes and offer them the chance to come to Congorilla and Congraville itself should look like a kind of cross between the Baxter building and Wakanda drawn by Jack Kirby. Because very soon it grows and becomes a technological and natural utopia. One thing I did want in, in this is I want the different buildings to have different purposes. And I want like a kind of, you know how they used to do in the 60s, of like a cutaway of the Baxter building with all the technological devices and stuff. Sure, like, And I kind of want that in these issues of what the different buildings do, what different species are represented, genetic codes, and like teach people a bit about genetic science as well.
0: So that's one team of creatures. I mean, some will be more human-ish, Planteans, and but does that connect to your idea of creature commandos, which is our next entry?
1: Laterally, yes, it does. Laterally. I want Eric Larson working on this. The big change from the creature commandos, original origin, I've kept most of it, is this is set across multiple time frames as the Creature Commandos progress. So it starts in World War II and comes to the sort of present day. Now, in this though, the Creature Commandos are told a lie instantly. They are naturally occurring clade members. They're offshoots of evolution, but they get captured by the then US military, have surgical procedures put on them, so they think, and they are told, these things have happened to you that have mutated you. You know, you're this is what you look like. And they show them like a stock photo. And they say, look, you work for us for the war effort. And we will cure you. And so they hypnotize them and dupe them into thinking they're regular humans who have gone through something unfortunate that has mutated them. They've got all the same powers and everything like that. They fight during World War II. Throughout that, they will run into Commander Steel at some point, who during this team up, it's quite tragic for Commander Steel because he meets these people and he thinks, oh, well, I can't be on my earth. So I'm going to wait for the next flash of radiation. And leave. And he actually doesn't realise he's back on his earth. And so these Quich commanders at the end of World War II come across a Nazi lab right at the end of World War II. And they find out that the Nazis have got people working for them similar to them. Different powers that are similar to them. By smashing this place up, defeating their enemies, they look at the Nazi blueprints and realise, oh my God, this is what we actually are. You know, the Nazis being into genetics and everything, they've been recruiting every kind of clade thing because, of course, Kongorilla is active in this time and they're trying to stop the Reich from doing this. And the, the Kongorilla were a huge enemy, a thorn in the Reich side. And the creature commandos realise, oh my God, we've been betrayed by our own country. And so the creature commandos, although Kongorilla will approach them at some point and say, look, I can take you to a place where you'll be safe and you'll be loved. And they say, no, we don't want any of that. We don't trust any organisations. So the creature commandos walk the earth for decades trying to help out people and they're like a th- third faction in this. They're trying to like, not recruit people but kind try, try and keep their own kind safe and live their lives as well as they can and try and find somewhere they can go. Uh, and that's the tragedy they don't realise that Kongorilla was somewhere they could trust. Obviously because they've got to live as well people hire them kind of like a supernatural A-team maybe and they are trying to sort of like understand that they have a place in the world even though the rest of the world isn't necessarily ready for them. And when they get to the Age of Heroes they're able to come out more and live more of a life. But when they do do that, they expose themselves, and that leads them into another book later on in the series that they will run afoul of. Okay,
0: we'll keep an eye out. I I put them in the 2000s because I've already used the 40s for Commander Steel. So 2000s for these guys is a kind of what DC already did with them with uh, Frankenstein, Agent of Shade in recent years, in that they are somewhat contemporary experiments gone wrong. Uh, going on paramilitary missions. They are what the Steel Brigade became, over time, replacing cybernetics with bioengineering as the means to repair and weaponize maimed soldiers. I like the original five in the entry well enough, but would include more recent additions like Callus the Mummy, Dr. Nina Mazursky the Gill Girl, and The Bride of Frankenstein. When you want to add someone, you just think Universal Monsters, and just, like, pick something from that. Since the book is set in the first decade of the 2000s, it's also an opportunity to discuss Iraq and Afghanistan, and play with the Metaphor of the Horrors of War, which is kind of the subtitle of this. It's a violent book that, despite being rooted in horror fantasy, still tells a very grounded human story of war and its effects on civilians and soldiers alike. So, by being relevant to the 2000s, it's still relevant today because those conflicts have never stopped. But with, you know, cool Mike Mangola kind of monsters in it. Next up is The Creeper, who I set in the 2010s. I'm really curious to see what you're going to do with it, but uh, for me, I've chosen this era for The Creeper because Jack Ryder seems to me a perfect vehicle for the disinformation age. I want him working at the DCU stand-in for Fox News, which I guess is Morgan Edge's Galaxy Communications. And Jack... Uh, is an absolutely repulsive, right-wing, unscrupulous, unethical, political commentator, agitator, and fake news spin doctor with a highly rated, socially destructive show. We hate him. But like, say, the Hulk, he has a split personality. And the Creeper, who appears without warning, I don't don't think it it happens on the air or anything, the Creeper is his liberal, anti-fascist side, just let loose. So this interpretation of the creeper fights injustice in spectacular ways like humiliating billionaires, freeing immigrants from cages, and giving the president a massive wedgie on national TV. And of course, there's plenty of punching of fascist police and white nationalists. He's fighting against everything Jack Ryder is encouraging. So basically, I see this as a reverse Hulk. Or a reverse demon, where the human identity is the monster. Even though the Creeper himself is kind of a lunatic, sort of turning that paradigm on its head. Now, you said you did not like the Creeper any more than you did before, after you did this. But still, I'm sure you tried to redeem him,
1: you know, creatively. Yeah, oh, yes. Gorgeous. yeah. So, I've tied the uh, Creeper into my ongoing mythology here. So, yeah, Jack Ryder, still a horrible person, right-wing, and what have you, but... So his origin is slightly different in that the creeper isn't a costume that gets fused to him or anything like that. He is a sort of mutation. Now, here's the thing. The creeper in my book is a kind of biological time bomb in many ways. And he contains all the sort of genetic variants. He's like a one-man clade. He's got every genetic variant for the whole species inside him. And he doesn't know why. And it's part of what drives him a little bit crazy. And the sort of subtitle for my book is it's Creeper, colon, everyone loves the creeper. He's still got all the regular powers that he's got. But he jumps around and he can give people powers. He can turn people into, like, like it's the metagene, but I'm calling it sort of like the clade in this to keep it all coherent. Like, Jack Ryder doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to sort of save people. But if someone's hurt, he can touch them. And the side effect is he heals them, but they get a weird power of some kind. He's still sort of compelled to fight evil, but he's not. Gracious about it, he's still like, he's still creepy. He's effectively got all the powers of the entire human race that it could potentially have roiling around inside him, messing him up. He's leaving this trail in his wake. He's leaving a trail of mutated people. They don't all physically mutate, but they all get a power. And so, after a while, various organizations come after him, and he's caught in this tug of war between gorilla and, as I mentioned earlier, Cyborg. And because he's so valuable, everybody wants. A piece of him. Everyone wants to sort of like dissect him or learn from him. Hence, everybody loves the creeper. And he just wants to be left alone. He even doesn't want the fame anymore. Like, Jack Ryder is like, no, I can't afford to be on the media anymore. Uh, this damn creeper thing. To the point where, funnily enough, he ends up where you started it with a direct split in his personality and Jack Ryder's hatred for what he's become causes his personality to sort of bifurcate. And so Jack Ryder and the Creeper start arguing with each other and that gets them into trouble as well. The Creeper eventually will manifest the ability to separate them and they will literally be able to argue in person and fight. They also realise in short order they need to merge back together again to survive. And so it's about, do we take on this responsibility? Do we gift this bizarre genetic gift you've got to mankind? Or do we just keep a low profile? Do we run? Because the Creeper side of him wants to help, much like in your book, but the Jack Riley wants to just never, ever let the Creeper come out and lead a quiet life and stick to his own path. He later will find out about Kongorilla's prophecy that the world will end in 2998 and that he could potentially stop it, which will add a new layer to it. Because he also hears about this other organisation, Cyborg, and their method for saving the world. And so they are split on a philosophical and a physical level on what should we do which path should we take should we try and help should we go with this organization go with this organization do we just stay on the road keep running and so it's about choice you know, not to sound glib, but kind of learning to live with yourself.
0: You know, some of these books do have to have some sort of philosophical flavor because you're editor.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I really try to avoid being pretentious and philosophical, but it just, it just kind of it just poured out of me, unfortunately. So uh,
0: Let's try a 1930s hero if you kept him in the 30s. Uh, the Crimson Avenger is a, like a golden age hero. So what did you do with him?
1: Still called the Crimson Avenger. We can have any writer or any artist, can't we? Doing these. They don't have to be alive.
0: Well, I've tried to keep people alive or just say, you know, art like that person that is no longer with us.
1: If I had my druthers, I would have had Maxwell Grant, the author of The Shadow Pulps, writing this. But as it is, I've got um, Howard Chaik art and someone like Chuck Dixon, because I want a cynical edge to it. And so I've kept almost all of Crimson Avengers Origin, except it picks up from the point of the explosion. He gets an illness, goes to Malaysia... Uh, He's going to die. Basically blows himself up to stop some criminals. Is where the comic books leave him. I say, what if he didn't die? What if the explosion was a cover-up? Who did he make contact with in Malaysia? What if he made a deal with something, someone, some entity, so that his disease was arrested, if not stopped? And he's working for this mysterious company slash entity. But the deal is, no one can know he's alive. But he's a 40s bombastic hero. And they've restored his youth. But he's in the present day. And he's trying to fight evil but do it covertly, which he finds incredibly difficult to do because he kind of wants to stand there and pose and say, you've been saved by the Crimson Avenger, you know, and have his two Colt 45s out there and and be very bold and brave. So again, this one is fairly standalone. This is, I think, perhaps the only standalone book I've really got. It's still connected to everything because he still runs across the other characters in this. But this is about someone from the 40s trying to adapt to now and he's not completely naive to the ways of the world he hasn't been transposed in time or anything he's, he's lived through various things he is desperately trying to not be himself he is trying to be this sort of you know undercover hero saving people and he desperately wants to be like well he wants to be the crimson avenger he wants to be like like he's back in the all-star squadron he wants to be bold and announce himself but he can't And he finds that every time someone finds out he's alive, he gets a little bit older. So he has to keep a low profile because every time someone discovers who he is, their perception of him affects his lifespan and the disease starts to come back and he starts to get older. So if he ever reveals himself to any descendants or family or anyone who's around at the time, he will instantly get older and older and older and more and more ill and he will die. So his life depends on keeping a low profile and being alone. And it's the balance between self-sacrificing heroism and the desire to reach out to your family and have love because he can't get too close to anybody and he has to kind of like it's about his transposition from bold 40s four-color hero to a kind of almost batman-esque daredevil-esque character and what is he willing to sacrifice would he rather die as himself or carry on living as again no pun intended a kind of shadow of his former self and detached from humanity and we will later find out that the same person who gave him this gift is the same person that spoke to Claw the Conquered. There's a connection, but it's very tacit, because anyone writing this after I get fired can ignore that completely.
0: I did set it in the 30s, and I like the original name better. So this character is called simply the Crimson, and uh, using the cape, mask, and hat from the early stories. But the Crimson is also a woman in my continuity well i felt like this issue was very very light on female characters so i wanted to at least redress that a little bit this is the other pulp title but it's less boy's own adventure than congo bill is and more crime fighter stuff like the shadow the spider etc so we, we had the same uh inspirations lee travis you know could just as easily be a woman's name so so it's the same story really she's a rich heiress who inherited a newspaper business. She's writing wrongs through that, but finds she needs to do things more directly and puts on a fancy dress costume to fight crime. And she doesn't mind pulling femme fatale tricks to guess what she wants. Uh, she should kind of be the Sandman mystery theater of my line, with art heavy on shadows, one might think Francavia or something like that. And the back matter should include... A serialized pulp story with a couple of illustrations, which continues from issue to issue and is, you know, relatively large lettering and in, in simple but lurid English. I don't want long pieces. I was talking about, like, the 5YL Legion earlier, and it's like the the text pieces in that were so long, and it's the kind of thing that you might read once and never reread again, and I'm sure some readers skipped on that, so... I want it to be like the original pulps, you know, for the masses. These are for fun and not necessarily super important, not a reason for a writer to, to write his novel on the side kind of thing. So I hate that. So, <laughs> so my Crimson Avenger is, you know, like a, a femme fatale heroine type, a uh, pulp heroine from the thirties. We're up to cyborg. Mine is from the 1980s. So basically exactly when he premiered. Uh, one of the things that the 80s were known for is angsty teenagers. Perhaps the best representative of that in the New Teen Titans was Cyborg, whose teenage life was upended by a frightful accident and his, his father turning him into what he would call a freak. In this continuity, Silas Stone worked for the paramilitary organization that started out as the Steel Brigade in the 1940s. Makes sense. When Victor was caught in an explosion, sneaking into his dad's laboratory, Silas basically rebuilt him with the available materials. But, you know, he can't play sports anymore, he can't go to school, he doesn't feel he can have a relationship... It's the metaphor for being a teenager. Your body's changing on you. You feel alone and isolated. But it's also a story of a life-changing injury and the recovery he must go through. So I want this to be a classic 80s hard luck comic uh, with soap opera, big fights, feeling guilty, and in Cyborg's case, being uh, hounded by government agencies who want to recruit him. So I really want to play around with that idea, like a mirror of what might happen to a regular kid, whether being headhunted by sports teams or colleges, I see Cyborg as uh, a hero that finds heartbreak everywhere and he's, he's changing his life plans all the time as he gets his, his bumps and bruises. Is your Cyborg actually the Teen Titan character? Or is it about that organization that we've been hearing about since the beginning?
1: Well, it's, it's a combination of both. Victor Stone in this becomes Victoria Stone. I didn't see any reason why it couldn't be. Sure. It's still called CYBORG, but it's an acronym. Uh, Joe Casey and I Want the Art by John Bolton. It's a very specific feel I want for this. And CYBORG stands for Cytoplasmic Bilateral Organization for Restoring the Genome. It starts with Silas Stone having a conversation some years ago with a man from NASA who we will recognise as Colonel Future. Then cuts to the present day. Victoria Stone has been mutilated by his father. We think it's because he's got a terrible illness. That's what we're told. And that's what Victoria believes. Turns out, Victoria has the metagene and was mutated or was a, a clade offshoot as the, um, the parlance has it in, in my books. No daughter of Silas Stones will be a freak so does the same thing to, to her as Victor got in the regular continuity. Her metagene is arrested, cyborg parts are integrated. This is because Silas Stone went quite mad upon realising, finding out about these projections of the future which we see in other books. We get some of that here. That will unfold in more detail in this book, so if that's what you want to find out, keep reading. So he knows that the world has got until roughly the 30th century. And Silas Stone, being a man of science, realises, well, that's nothing compared to what the Earth should have, and what the human race potentially could have. However, unfortunately, Silas's wife also goes a bit mad when he re- when she realises what her husband has done. Silas panics, and with his secretary, he murders his wife to cover it up. Victoria then finds out about this. She also goes a little bit mad, especially when she realises not just this, but because of the parts that her father has plugged into her, she is now the operating core of Cyborg, the, the computer corps, an organisation that is bent on recruiting and incarcerating any what they call genomic deviations from across time. Because she also finds out he's got some form of temporal technology. So Victoria just is split. What does she, What does she do? She even finds out that she's got a a brother across time that her father sired and also mutilated in a similar fashion. And we will later find out that this is Claw. uh, Victoria can literally hear the pain and angst of their charges, um, what are called GDs in this, genetic deviants. So they're all locked up because Silas is operating on them, trying to find out about them, ways to stop them. Because Cyborg's operating system says it's the genetic deviants are the things that are going to cause the end of the world which in a very, you know, in a certain sense of word is true, but also, as we know from the other stories, completely wrong. So Victoria's got two voices in her head, the pain of her own kind and her father's voice, this is for the greater good. And so Victoria has to decide, does she kill her father? Does she let things progress? Does Cyborg, the organisation, have a point? But also at the same time, she's hearing a signal saying, Victoria, come to Kenya where you'll be safe, where you'll be understood. And also we'll meet lots of other members of the Cyborg organisation who, you know, if the line continues, could potentially have their own spin-off and discover what's going on and whether they should rebel, etc., etc. This organization is obviously the quote-unquote villain to Kongorilla's benevolence. Right.
0: Now we're at the last page of the issue, not the last entry we'll actually do, because we do have a bonus book. But Cyclotron, I decided, counted as, even though he was like a, an antagonist in the comics, he was forced to go against the All-Star Squadron by the Ultra-Humanite, is actually a heroic character and really designed to look like a hero. So Cyclotron is in it. Uh, What did you do with this guy?
1: I actually turned him into a hero slash villain. My book is called Cyclotron. There is no Cyclotron. Same origin up to the point where Ultra-Humanite operated on him, infused him with atomic energy, but that caused his physical body to disintegrate. And now Terry Curtis is an atomic ghost and he's got the desire to do good absolutely wants to do good but he is like an atomic ghost so he possesses bodies and he burns them out really fast and this can happen in any time period because he doesn't have to worry about linear time particularly he can only go in one direction so he starts in the 40s and moves forward A lot of the time, he's in the body of a person possessing them. They don't know anything about it, but their body gets used up. And he's like, oh my God, I've got to stop this villain. But if I do, I'm going to kill this person. You know, the wages of sin, he's thinking, the greater good surely is to stop this villain and let this one individual host die because otherwise this villain will kill lots of people. And it's about that decision and he keeps making it. And so a function of his powers not being shackled by linear time means that if he kills a bunch of people in, say, 30s, The guilt might be too much and he'll jump forward to the 50s where people might have forgotten about him because he can't bear it. And it's about him moving from body to body, disintegrating people. He can leave before, but it does still wear them down. So he might, you might lose 20, 30 years of your life for every 10 minutes he's in your body. And it's about Terry Curtis deciding, am I a monster or am I a hero? Can you weigh up that like an account ledger? I envisage Cyclotron probably being a, a limited series rather than an ongoing because I don't know you would have to fundamentally change his status quo to keep that going. Because after a while, he's just a mass murderer and there's not really any debate. So it has to be short enough that there's an actual ongoing debate. However, when he does get to the present, the cyber organisation suddenly takes a uh, an interest in Cyclotron. They say, join us because we've got a huge stock of bodies you can use up. And it doesn't matter if you destroy them in in searching out evil and hunting evil. In fact, we know of some other evil you can go and destroy for us. And thus, the dilemma reaches a nexus point.
0: He's like a toxic dead man.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Funny, I was... Kind of thinking that, actually. Yeah.
0: I mean, if he gets into Cyborg, you, the book could go on. It could have more legs, you know, if you just simply... You did change the status quo. He did get cured. or For me, I, I think mine has some legs. This is one where I made changes after I wrote my blurb. And, uh, you know, it's kind of... As you'll see, it takes place in the 50s. I decided that the first hero of the Atomic Age would be Canadian. I promised this at the top of the show. Hmm. 12 December 1952... Chalk River Laboratories in Chalk River, Ontario, partial meltdown, about 10,000 Curies released. It took two years to clean up. That's the real world. In the DC Universe, I was going to have Terrence Curtis miraculously absorb the whole thing and become Canada's first superhero. But I had the word cycle in Cyclotron going round and round my head for the better part of the week, and then I decided to let the atomic energy be absorbed by, by seven individuals. And because of 1950s technobabble about whatever elements, atomic rotation, cyclotrons' powers actually cycle from one person to the other at pretty much a daily rate. Each of the seven have their day of the week in which to be cyclotron, and each one is based in a different part of Canada. So we'd have BC, Alberta, the Prairies, Ontario, Quebec, the Atlantic Provinces, and the Territories— It's a good diverse group featuring men, women, First Nations, people of different ages. And this is a chance to give coverage to a country that's been largely ignored by DC Comics. More explored, but often badly mischaracterized over at Marvel, thanks to Alpha Flight. Uh, But of course, it's also it's the Canada of the 1950s. Yeah, we didn't have the Maple Leaf flag yet at that time. So Canada isn't all that different from the U.S. really in this era. We're involved in the Korean War. Uh, there's some sustained economic prosperity, a movement to the suburbs, the first steps into the television era, and, and really some ugly discrimination. So for example, the year the series would be set in, 1953, an immigration act was enacted to prohibit homosexuals from entering the country and was only repealed in 1977. Of course, how the First Nations were treated was just abominable. So, all of that is in there, like the veneer of the 1950s. And all that to say, I want the series to be well-researched in terms of history and geography. Not necessarily stick to Canada, necessarily, since Cyclotron basically has Captain Adam level powers. He can move around. There's the Korean element. I don't think there's necessarily one way to do 50s comics. They were pretty heterogeneous. And just like this strange team, depending on the day or the character that is inhabiting... Cyclotron, we can do different kinds of 50s stories. But we could still do, like, in the back matter, at the at, at the back of the book, we could still do, like, old flash facts from the early Silver Age, where, you know, the science of the story would be explained in a one-pager hosted by Dr. Curtis, like a wink, to that era. I, I promise a, a Canadian book, Cyclotron is my Canadian book somehow. It was kind of rather boring without the cycle idea. It was just like an atomic hero that we've seen, whether it's Solar or... Or Captain Adam, or... So that was my kind of askew take that I came up with maybe a week later. And uh, well, that brings us to the bonus book. So uh, you had a chance to create a book from other entries in, in in the issue. Did you do a bonus book? I imagine you did.
1: Yep, I did. Well, I had two ideas. One is like a throwaway joke, which would just be the Avengers of Computo. And it's the Legion of Superheroes computer stationary. And it's members of the Legion of Superheroes running past just making comments about whatever the crisis of the day is. And it's just basically an excuse to get James and Matisse and Keith Giffen to do the Bwahaha Justice League, but with the Legion of Superheroes. And that would be it. It would just one static joke. Just people running forth, having their angst and strife about whatever thing that's going on in the Legion of Superheroes at the, on the day. Could be
0: a special. And, exactly, and yes. I know you're joking, but Computo almost got my bonus book, my front runner, until I designed the whole timeline idea. And then I needed to fill in a certain decade. And so that informed my choice. So what did you go with ultimately?
1: Probably a fairly standard choice, but I went with Kronos. It's a kind of a an overview book, like an entry book into the whole system because I imagine it being like a quarterly, like a big thick quarterly, like double, triple size. And it's about Kronos who has this overview of this whole battle across time to save the earth. He also, you know, obviously Kronos travels in time. He knew at one point... There was way more history to Earth, but because of this event, because this Color Kid is so powerful, he's upset the time-space continuum, Kronos decides, okay, maybe I can do something about this. So he travels to the future and he takes Color Kid from before he blows up the Earth and he sort of blanks his memory and he calls him Praxis just because he needs a sidekick, he needs a name, he figures, if I've got this kid as a sidekick and he doesn't blow up the Earth, I'm on easy street because this kid can do basically anything. He trains him to use his powers and Kronos realises that Oh, wait, hang on. Despite the fact that I've taken him out of time, the Earth still blows up in 2998 or whenever it is. And he goes through time with Praxis, seeing all the time, intervening here, doing things there, having fun, still stealing stuff, etc. Because he's not reformed, exactly. He realises after a while, oh my God, am I actually training this kid to eventually become the menace that will destroy the Earth by accident? You know, when I put him back, because I have to put him back in time because I understand how paradox works. Am I accidentally training this kid on some subconscious level? Am I slowly turning this Anakin Skywalker into Darth Vader and not realizing I'm the cause of the Earth's destruction? But people can buy this book as an entry point. One day they'll be investigating Cyborg, the next they're dropping on Congorilla, Commander Steel, Cridge Commandos. It'd be like a, an anthology book, but with one core story written by a core team and other people from their books can do short little vignettes to try and attract new readers. Um, so people can read it and see, oh, that's what these guys are about. That's what these guys are about. That's fun. I might pick up this book as well now. So Chronos and Praxis is my bonus book.
0: Imagine if you were actually editing this line. You're, you've really given yourself quite the task of coordinating between these books because they're so interconnected in ways.
1: D- did I mention that I'm going to get fired several times um, during this? Second? Sure.
0: But I mean, it's, it's still <laughs> – we always start with the idea that we're getting fired – Almost immediately, I think then Ryan Daly say that in the, like the first episode. Yep. Yeah, for me, and I think when I th- was talking about Computo, I I seem to remember now that I would have gone with the Danielle Computo and done like stories for her. Who I thought was sort of like a, a Legionnaire that got short shrift in. Uh, you know, they put her in the SW Six Legion uh, as Invisible Kid's sister, and she had a cool look. She had like cool powers, and then they immediately went to reboot, and never used her. It's almost like. Like she became Kid Quantum in a way, so I I, I kind of missed her and wanted to give her something. But the decade that was really missing something was the seventies, and I hadn't cracked the seventies necessarily. So when I think of seventies comics, I think of grit and horror. That's not computer. So in my nineteen seventies series, it's actually going to be the Crime Doctor because when I think of the seventies in other media. I think of crime dramas in film, I think of police dramas on TV, and for this specifically, something like uh, Quincy M.E. with Jack Klugman. I don't know if you got that, but this is my take on that. Dr. Bradford Thorne isn't a villain in my world. He's a medical detective who deals with the strange, the unusual, the unnatural, the supernatural, the unsolvable. I think a lot of of details from his original story are easy to repurpose. He genuinely loves medicine, but he just couldn't resist the lure of crime. Fighting in this case. He's built his own crime clinic in a secret sub basement of his townhouse. In my series, he's a hero, but he's also a tarnished one who can get very cold and calculated and break the Hippocratic oath when he thinks the situation warrants it. This is mostly a mystery series, but he can get into the action as a vigilante, uh, wielding a gun, a scalpel, a syringe, using his medical knowledge to effectively disable opponents. And that opponent could be a werewolf or an invading alien. You know, things can get weird. Medical puzzles could definitely go down the X-Files route, or I guess it's the 70s, so the the Kolchak route. I also want him to have a good supporting cast, like a family that doesn't know what's happening under their feet, uh, a nurse who's in on it, the people at his work, you know, the above boards clinic who aren't in on it. So here I know Gene Colan isn't with us, but really it's that kind of look I'd envision mm. for the art. And for the writing, someone who maybe used to be a medical doctor, like my dad used to read these medical mystery novels written by a former physician, allegedly. Uh, and that's the kind of attention to detail I would want out of this. So that's my, basically my whole timeline. And this is a section of the show where we sort of wax each other's cars and say, well, if I only had money for one comic from the other guy's collection, what would it be? Let me start. It's so interconnected, and you can only buy one, <laughs> so it's a little bit like Max Travers' collection last time, where it, it's hard to choose just one. Uh, so I went with, believe it or not, your creeper idea is the one I picked because I really like the idea of this this guy who is creating a superhero universe around himself. He feels kind of like the Wild Cards virus, or you know, it's like, and, and all these guys around him would probably be pretty. Strange and loopy, like, it's like his city had one hero and now suddenly it has dozens and it's all his fault. Uh, And I kind of want to see that universe, that micro universe grow out of his existence there. And I also like the whole thing where he's... Fighting against himself and and debating with himself and all of those visuals look yeah I, this is a book I would want to read.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a dial C for Creeper. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know what this says, but my choice of yours was going to be Creeper as well. Oh, funny. I really like the whole sort of political side of it and the, the idea that his dark side is his light side and his light side is his dark side yeah I thought that was a, a fabulous idea just this idea that the bit that he wants to keep repressed is his good side he's trying to desperately he's not trying to stop himself getting angry like the Hulk he's trying to stop himself from getting compassionate like a decent person <laughs> Which I thought was a really lovely twist on it. Yeah, and then also, I doffed my cap to you. So far, that you're the only person on this planet who's made me even remotely want to read a Creeper book. I cannot stand the Creeper, but I do like that approach.
0: So, I mean, that's two Creeper books. <laughs> like Your hated character is the one that got the two votes. <laughs> yeah. Like I always say, every character can be unlocked, can be interesting, can be... You just have to put the effort into it. Well, dear listeners, it's time to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com, tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer uh, using these characters? And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. I hope you had fun, Ryan.
1: I did. I had a great deal of fun, and I've learned a lot about myself. (laughs) That's the important
0: part. So thanks for trying the experiment with me. Until next time, who's editing? We We are. are.
1: I've created so many different villains over my uh, career,
0: and Cyborg didn't have any that was very specific to him. Victor is a character who has machine parts but really wants to be a human. We have this new character who really wants to be a machine, and Victor holds the secret of how to do that. And it goes from the 1800s in Japan to right now. And it introduces a lot of giant robots, tons of giant robots.